Hi, and welcome to the Law Notes episode of the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. On today's episode, we're going to recap the Supreme Court term from June. There's a lot to talk about besides Fulton, including Arlene's Flowers and the Gavin Grimm case. We have a bizarre political case involving the former governor of Iowa and a commissioner for the state who had a sexual orientation discrimination jury verdict overturned by the state's Supreme Court. And finally, we have a Sixth Circuit case dealing with a transgender worker in an outrageous hostile work environment claim that fell on unsympathetic ears. With us, as always, is Professor Art Leonard, chief editor and writer of LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal developments here and abroad. Hi, Art. How you doing? Okay. Having a good summer. Good. Yeah, it's been hot and it's been wet. Yeah, the reservoirs won't run dry this year in New York. We we had a deluge yesterday, the dregs of Hurricane or Tropical Storm Elsa. Wow. I have been seeing these memes of there's a woman like swimming through the subway. <laughs> I think that's um, a bit overdone. There, there I took were- the subway home and the floor of the subway car was wet, but no one was swimming. You didn't see sharks or alligators circling? No, no. How about a pizza eating rats? <laughs> pizza eating rats. Uh, I don't think P- I don't think rats like New York pizza. <laughs> okay. Um, well, uh, we've we haven't spoken. Well, we've spoken a little bit more than than we usually do because we got to do our special podcast about Fulton. Um, I'm hoping that we're going to go ahead and. Uh, start with a kind of Supreme Court uh, summary for folks because, um, you know, the Fulton case came down and we've had some time to digest it and think about it, uh, how it fits in jurisprudentially um, and what its ultimate impact might be. But there have also been a couple of really uh, interesting LGBT related developments, you know, not not decisions per se, mostly denials of cert, um, but in in cases that we were closely watching. So let's go ahead and talk about Fulton first, and then we'll we'll touch on the other cases that we wanted to, to touch on. Art, do you have now that you've had some time to process the Fulton decision, has your opinion about its impact change? I know a lot of people the day that it came out, there were the you know pro-LGBT groups saying this is either ranging from this is a nothing burger to this is a great win for us it, to it could have been worse. Um, but then again, I mean, it's a loss. Um, how would you characterize it now? Well, I would characterize it as a minimalist loss. Right. Uh, and a bullet dodge. Because there are several members of the Supreme Court, in particular, Justices uh, Samuel Alito, uh, Clarence Thomas, and Neil Gorsuch, who are eager to overrule Employment Division versus Smith. Employment Division versus Smith was the decision from 30 years ago in which the Supreme Court said that neutral laws of general applicability may not be attacked on grounds that they burden someone's, incidentally burden someone's practice of religion. 
basically, uh, people who don't want to comply with neutral laws of general application because of their personal religious objections do not have a First Amendment right to do so. Uh, Justice Scalia wrote that opinion. He said it would be like anarchy. He even used the term like anarchy in his opinion. If any individual could decide based on their own beliefs that they're not going to comply with this law or that law or that law. Uh, it's one thing if you have a law that targets religion or a law that was specifically enacted for the purpose of burdening religion, even though on its face it looks neutral. Yeah. Uh, those, those present different issues. Uh, so the problem that we had here in the Fulton case uh, was three members of the court were eager to overrule Smith and the cert petition posed three questions, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, and whether they should overrule Smith. And so they said, we granted cert for the specific purpose of deciding whether to overrule Smith. And now the majority of the court has said, Smith is not involved in this case. And we don't agree with them that Smith is not involved in this case. Uh, I mean, there were, there were several interesting issues floating around. I think uh, you have to read Justice Gorsuch's concurring opinion because it just picks apart the majority opinion uh, to the point of ridicule. I mean, Gorsuch would have overruled Employment Division versus Smith. And in the it's absence of- employment, because he's a Scalia fan. Yeah, but in the absence of Employment Division versus Smith, uh, this case would probably go the way it did on the merits here, uh, but not necessarily so. Uh, because I, uh, one, one way that I fault Chief Justice Roberts' opinion is he gives such short thrift to the state's interest in uh, preventing discrimination against people under city contracts, uh, and the use of taxpayers' money to, uh, to discriminate. Uh, but uh, he, he turned it into a very minimalist decision. Uh, he said, first of all, and this is a, a controversial point, he said, the Fair Practices Ordinance of the city of Philadelphia, which bans discrimination based on sexual orientation in uh, public accommodations doesn't apply to this case because we have decided, contrary to the decision of the district court and the third circuit, we have decided that Catholic social services is not a public accommodation. Uh, and so that statute, which is a neutral law of general applicability, isn't involved in this case. Uh, so once it's not involved in this case, what is involved in this case? What is involved in this case is an individual contract that the city enters into with, with each social service agency that's going to do foster care work. And the contract says, there's a general non-discrimination clause in the contract that includes sexual orientation. And then there's a specific non-discrimination clause regarding the evaluation of uh, potential foster families and uh, the placement decisions of children with them that also has a non-discrimination provision but that says that in its sole discretion, the commissioner can make an exception. All right, so Roberts seizes upon some language in Employment Division versus Smith, which says that if a policy has exceptions, has a, has a procedure for making exceptions, it's no longer a policy of general applicability. So he said the issue in this case is very narrowly focused on the question why didn't the city make an exception to Catholic Social Services? Right. Catholic Social Services wanted an exception to the policy articulated in the contract because of their religious beliefs. 
why did the city say no? And he said, because Employment Division versus Smith doesn't apply to this case, this turns into a strict scrutiny case. We revert to the free exercise case law that predates Employment Division versus Smith, under which a government policy that imposes a burden on free exercise of religion is subject to strict scrutiny, which means that the city has to have a compelling justification. And Robert said, the question isn't whether the city has a compelling justification to prevent discrimination against its LGBT citizens. The question is, did the city have a compelling justification to not make an exception for Catholic social services? And when you narrow it down to that question, the answer has to be, and this is why you get the three liberal, more liberal justices agreeing, the, the answer has to be no, the city doesn't have a compelling reason because there are 20 other social service agencies in the city that are perfectly happy to certify same-sex couples to be foster parents and to uh, provide services and support, and do all the other stuff that Catholic social services uh, is uh, having religious problems with. So he says, the city doesn't have a compelling justification. The very fact, he said, that they put an exception provision shows that they don't have a compelling reason for insisting on strict compliance because they reserve to themselves the right to make exceptions. Yes, I think this is certainly a very narrow loss, and thank you so much for summarizing it for us. You know, I take issue with the idea that just because there's other places that exist in Philadelphia that will serve all people, that that means we'll allow one to discriminate. That's kind of not the way civil rights law works. But from this Supreme Court, it is the absolute best we probably could have done. Um, let's go ahead and pivot because we have other cases to talk about. If you want more on this, we do have a special breaking episode that we recorded that I recommend you listen to. But the court also denied cert in uh, two other cases. Art, let's talk about those. So there are two cert denials of consequence that took place in those last two weeks of the term. First, remember Gavin Grimm? I'm sure your listeners remember Gavin Grimm. Years ago, years ago, Gavin Grimm was a student at the Gloucester County High School in Virginia. Uh, he was transitioning. He uh, got a legal name change. He got his birth certificate adjusted. He, uh, he got a driver's license uh, designating him as male. But guess what? The school wouldn't accept any of that. Uh, the school said, no, 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 you may not use the boys' room, boys' restrooms. Uh, you got to go to the nurse's office or, you know, we'll build some single stall restrooms that are like all gender restrooms around the school. But none of them were anywhere near the classroom where you had to go to, go to class. So he couldn't, you know, dash to the, to the bathroom between classes and stuff. Uh, and uh, he brought suit. He was represented by the ACLU. And uh, the... Uh, District Court eventually, and there's much litigation underlying all this, but eventually the District Court said, uh, and this is after he had graduated already, uh, said the case isn't moot because he uh, is entitled to at least nominal damages for uh, the constitutional violation and the Title IX violation that took place. So the District Court eventually found that there was a violation of Title IX and of the Equal Protection Clause. The Third Circuit agreed the Third Circuit refused uh, on bank and uh, the Gloucester School Board uh, filed a cert petition and the Supreme Court denied cert. 
which was sort of interesting because this is a dispute. You know, the restroom and the locker room disputes are popping up all around the country. I mean, there are rulings from several different circuits. Uh, and the courts have basically gone along uh, with the idea that they have a right to transition. They have a right to be recognized in the gender that they're living. Uh, so that's that's the, the situation with Grimm. I did just want to note before we move on that Josh Block, who's the ACLU attorney who's been representing Gavin Grimm uh, and has for the whole time, said that, you know, this was on the day on Twitter that it came down, that it was a huge victory, of course, but even ADF didn't file an amicus brief asking the Supreme Court to take Gavin's case. And he characterizes it as the reality of trans kids using the restroom doesn't create the same hysteria that it used to. That's why they have turned to other targets like sports and healthcare. Yeah. And certainly seen all of the bills in around trans people using uh, in sports and youth having access to healthcare. Um, so that does seem to ring true. And like you said, most of the courts are unanimous with particularly given the Bostock ruling, you know, that's the reality. Yeah. And, and so, well, it's, it's, it, it puts a stamp of finality on this. And we had a very strong decision out of the Fourth Circuit. Great. It's really well done. So uh, it's right, nice. So move, to do it, good. move us on to Arlene's Flowers. Right, Arlene's Flowers. This, this had been lingering on the court's docket for years. Yeah. In, in fact, Arlene's Flowers was actually pending at the court when they decided Masterpiece Cake Shop in 2018. Uh, this is uh, Baronel Stutzman, the pri proprietor of Arlene's Flowers, and one of her longtime customers who had been in frequently to buy floral arrangements and things like this. I guess he was a party guy, but it, and she knew he was gay, and she said she had no problem with that. She was very happy to, uh, to sell him flowers. But when he came in and he said, well, this is for my wedding with Kurt, she said, no. But, you know, and, and evidently it was Kurt, it was the boyfriend, the, the fiance, who was pissed off and posted on his Facebook page. And it was picked up by the local media. And suddenly the attorney general was screaming, this woman will not get away with this. And so it was the state that actually uh, initiated a lawsuit uh, against Sussman and Arlene's Flowers. And then uh, the two guys joined in as co-plaintiffs in the lawsuit but uh, went up through the Washington state courts uh, and uh, the Washington Supreme Court affirmed the trial court's ruling that there was a violation of the state's public accommodations law and that there was no first amendment right to refuse to uh, comply in this case. And uh, she did her cert petition and it was pending there. And after the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, uh, uh, Alliance Defending Freedom was representing her by the way, so they immediately filed uh, a statement with the court after Masterpiece came down and they said, oh, there was bias, there was hostility in the state of Washington, the attorney general, blah, blah, blah. And so you should send this back and, and you know, we should have a new shot at it. So the court vacated the Washington Supreme Court's decision and sent it back. And the Washington Supreme Court, they took their time over it, uh, but they said, we have scoured the record at the trial court, the record here, we can find no trace whatsoever that anyone involved in the adjudication of this case showed hostility to Ms. Stutzman's religion. And she said, but that isn't the point. The attorney general was hostile. For just a minute, the court said, the Masterpiece Cake Shop case talked about the adjudicators 
not the prosecutor. The prosecutor doesn't have to be neutral. You know, uh, so so they they rejected that. In fact, their their uh, opinion on remand, they basically quoted large blocks of text from their prior decision, and they rejected her argument that the masterpiece decision extended to all government officials must be neutral with respect to religion and may not evince hostility with respect to religion. And after all, enforcing a statute isn't being hostile to religion; it's enforcing a statute. Uh, so uh, she was right back with a new cert petition, and it just sort of sat there for the longest time. It was distributed once or twice for discussion and conference, but they didn't make any decisions. It was just left hanging. And I had a feeling, uh, because there were very few petitions that were still pending from the uh, October 2019 term of the court, uh, but uh, the day after, the court issued Fulton versus Philadelphia, ADF, and you, you know they have to have written this in advance, ADF filed a supplement to its cert petition with the court saying, okay, now you've got to grant our case because now you can overrule the Plummet Division versus Smith using our case. And the court said no. And they never explain why when they say no, unless the only way you can figure out what's going on and why it took so long why it took so long to decide to dismiss this uh, because there was a statement that Justices Alito, Thomas, and Gorsuch would have granted the cert petition because they're looking for a vehicle to overrule Employment Division versus Smith. And uh, that's that's probably why Fulton took so long. And you can see that uh, in, uh, in Gorsuch's concurring opinion. He says, look, 2,500 pages of briefing were filed in this case, and we cogitated for six months on this case. And what's the result? This pathetic decision. <laughs> so it's interesting, the court ducked. It ducked from Grimm, it ducked from Arlene's uh, flowers. Uh, I see, partly I see the hand of Chief Justice Roberts in this. He's trying to steer the court away from too many politically charged decisions because they have enough on their platter for next term. They're going to be doing abortion. They're going to be doing guns. And they did voting rights. We won't talk about the voting rights case, but there were some there, you know, there was the ACA case that happened, I think on the same day as. But the ACA case was totally, it was all about standing. Yeah. And I think that that one was supposedly engineered by Justice Breyer. Yeah. And Justice Breyer did not retire, which was another thing we were waiting to see. I know. Okay. Well, hopefully, I I won't weigh in one way or or the other, but there are a lot of think pieces out there about about Justice Breyer's retirement. Um, I would rather Clarence Thomas retire to be honest. His non retirement. (laughs) Well, yeah, Thomas, if Thomas retires, then we pick up a progressive seat on the court. All right, let's take a short break and uh, we'll come back with a case out of Iowa. Are we doing Iowa next? Yeah, we're doing Iowa next. All right, we're back. So now we're going to talk about a strange case from the Iowa Supreme Court where a substantial jury award in a state commissioner's sexual orientation discrimination case was overturned. 
The political implications are a bit telling here, given that the case was against the former governor, who, with his GOP successor, appointed six of the seven justices on the court. The court found that the plaintiff, who is a gay man, did not present enough evidence that the governor knew that he was gay when he tried to force him out of office. So Art, um, you know, at least we don't have, I, I was looking at the composition of the Iowa Supreme Court. The Iowa Supreme Court used to have an all white, all cis, all male court. And it looks like they've now got some, you know, women on, on the court as well. Um, but they're all Republican appointees, aren't they? And uh, what, why does this decision kind of just smack of politics? Well, partly because you have to suspend your disbelief. I mean, all right. So uh, Terry Branstad was a Republican, was governor of Iowa for many years. And uh, then uh, I think after serving three terms or something like that, he decided uh, to leave politics and he uh, signed up to become the president of Des Moines University, which is described in the court's opinion as an osteopathic school of medicine. <laughs> but at any rate, so, and uh, when he was hired to be president of Des Moines University, he committed to the trustees of the university, he would stay out of and away from politics while serving in that position. Okay, he was succeeded in office by Tom Vilsack, uh, who uh, is a Democrat and who had served as the Secretary of Agriculture uh, in uh, the Obama administration. Uh, and uh, Vilsack uh, appointed Chris Godfrey, an out gay man, uh, lawyer, to be uh, the commissioner of Iowa's Workers' Compensation Board, basically the, the person who makes the ultimate decisions on uh, workers' compensation claims. Uh, he was obviously very, very capable and competent to do this job. Uh, and uh, then uh, Brandstadt was uh, prevailed upon by the Iowa Republican Party to come out of retirement because they wanted to reclaim the governorship. I mean, through the whole time, they've always controlled the, uh, the legislature. But uh, Branstadt managed to defeat Culver for re-election. And in the months leading up to his taking office, uh, his staff notified all of the commissioners of the various agencies who have been appointed by Democratic governors that they were expected to tend to their resignations so that Branstadt could decide whether to allow them to continue in office or whether to replace them. And many of them did comply, uh, but uh, Godfrey took the position. He had just been confirmed the year before for a six-year term. He said, I don't have to resign. In fact, under state law, the governor can't force, can't uh, remove me from office. I have a six-year term. I was confirmed by the state Senate uh, and I'm gonna serve out my term. And he refused. And at first, uh, the people evidently at the governor's mansion, they were a little stunned by this. They didn't know quite how to respond. Uh, the uh, Branstad personally met with Godfrey and were told in the opinion it's the only time the two men ever met in person. And uh, uh, Godfrey said, well, look, I believe I have a right to continue serving and uh, I plan to continue serving. I like this job. Uh, and when, uh, 
when Godfrey was appointed, it was news. He was an out gay man. Uh, this was the first time an out gay man had been appointed to be the head of a state agency in Iowa. It's a big deal because evidently during the confirmation process, someone made some remarks about him being gay. Uh, and uh, so it was, it was a matter, in fact, there was, there was testimony in the case that it was a, basically a matter of common knowledge. Uh, everyone at the Workers' Comp Commission knew he was gay, but at the end of uh, six months after he'd taken office, he said, now's the time to go back and address the Godfrey problem. How do we get rid of this guy? Uh, it seems under state law, someone who was appointed to a set term and, and confirmed by the Senate can only be removed for cause by the executive council, which consists of the governor and the lieutenant governor and a few other top officials. But they have a, a list of reasons and none of the reasons applied to Godfrey. He hadn't engaged in any misbehavior or anything. There was no hook that they had. So uh, they came up with a strategy. It seems that there is an authorized salary range for commissioners from a low to a high figure. Now, uh, because of his interim appointments and everything, Godfrey had been serving as commissioner for several years and he was being paid at the top of the range, which in his case was, let's see, at this time, $112,070, uh, which I guess goes further in Iowa than it does in New York. You know, we say, look at that, that isn't extraordinary wealth, but it's well above what the average person makes. Uh, but the bottom of the range is 73250 And the governor, it seems, had discretion to adjust the salary. So he sent his minions, two of his staff members, to visit Godfrey. And they said, if you don't submit your resignation, your salary will be reduced to the bottom of the range. And Godfrey was outraged. I mean, it, it looked like a political move. Uh, he was outraged. Uh, he contacted some friends in the legislature. And in fact, one state senator uh, later testified that he called uh, someone he knew on Branstad's staff and he said, hey guys, uh, you better watch out. Uh, Godfrey's openly gay and that can become an issue about this. And the next day, Godfrey went public. He charged that he was being removed because he was gay, that it was sexual orientation discrimination. Now, Branstad claims that he didn't know Godfrey was gay. I mean, he was surrounded by people who did. I mean, the, all the, the Republicans in the Senate, state Senate all knew he was gay when they confirmed him. Uh, the ABI people who were complaining about him being anti-business, they knew he was gay. He, even some of his staff members knew he was gay. The Lieutenant Governor knew he was gay, but Branstad, total denial. He said, I didn't know he was gay. And besides, uh, and this comes out in the opinion, he says, uh, when, by the time this comes to the trial, of course, Branstad is no longer governor because he resigned as governor because Trump appointed him ambassador to China. And so uh, Lieutenant Governor Reynolds became the governor and was subsequently reelected to that position. But Branstad says, and when I went off to China, who did I take to be my chief of staff? An out gay man. He said, I have no problem with gay people. We wanted to get rid of Godfrey because he was anti-business and because like the ABI, which uh, has a lot of influence with the state Republican party, they asked for us to remove him and replace someone who's more uh, friendly towards business. So this was Branstad's argument all along. He said, one, I didn't know he was gay. Two, that's not why he was removed. And I didn't remove him, he resigned. Although he didn't resign right away. 
you know, he's fighting this for a while, but eventually he took a position with the Obama administration and the U.S. Department of Labor. And in fact, uh, Biden, under the Biden administration, he was sworn in. Uh, now he's serving as director of all workers' comp programs at the U.S. Department of Labor. So he's in a pretty nice position. I bet he's being paid more than he was being paid as a, a state workers' comp commissioner. All right, but, but what did the jury think? But the point is the jury, well, he put in all kinds of evidence, circumstantial evidence, to suggest that Branstad had to know he was gay. And that certainly the people who were telling Branstad to remove him knew he was gay. The ABI people knew he was gay. The state Republican Party has a strong anti-gay legislative agenda. They wanted to overrule the Iowa Supreme Court's marriage equality decision. They wanted to remove sexual orientation from the state human rights law. That's all on their platform. Uh, so uh, evidently the jury was convinced that Branstad knew because the jury ruled in his favor. And the jury awarded uh, $500,000 against the state and $1 million individually against Branstad on the constitutional legal protection claim. Branstad insisted, he said, it's not because he was gay, it's not because he was gay, all right? So the jury obviously didn't believe him. They awarded $1.5 million and uh, the defendants appealed to the Iowa Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said, there is no direct evidence that Branstad knew he was gay. You know, this is one of those hear no evil, see no evil decisions. We see no direct evidence there. And the circumstantial evidence has to do with other people. It, that it doesn't we have a jury. <laughs> yeah, the, the, you know, facts found by a jury. Uh, but they said, if there's no evidence, that there was no evidence put in that he knew that uh, Godfrey was gay when he made the decision to reduce his salary. And the Supreme Court just reversed and said, well, there's, there's no direct evidence here. And therefore the case shouldn't have even gone to the jury. I just thought this was, this was fairly outrageous. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to report that Godfrey landed on his feet, you know, he got a job in the Obama administration. Uh, he was doing pretty important work as uh, a member of the Employees' Compensation Appeals Board, and he eventually became the chief of the board, uh, the chief member of the board, and he was sort of running the show there. And now he's director of Workers' Comp Programs. I mean, look, yes, he landed on his feet with a job, but if somebody took a million plus dollars away from me after a jury had awarded it and i don't even live in iowa where i'm sure it really matters um that would just be outrageous all right let's go ahead and take a break because we have one more case to discuss yeah. all right we're back Biden is quickly appointing judges to federal courts across the board, and we've already seen some confirmed, but things aren't moving fast enough in states that are dominated by Republican senators. Those circuit courts are loaded up with far-right judges. We've talked about the Fifth Circuit on many occasions here. Today, we are going to look at a case from the Sixth Circuit with a panel of two George W. Bush appointees and one Trump appointee who were totally unsympathetic to a transgender plaintiff's claim that they were subjected to a hostile work environment due to their gender identity. Art, tell us about this case. Okay, so this, this is a Jane Doe plaintiff. She worked for the city of Detroit. Uh, the decision isn't even specific about which agency she worked for, but uh, she uh, was identified male at birth and was presenting as a male 
when she started working for the city in January of 2016. Uh, but five months after starting work, she notified her employer that she would be transitioning and she asked for time off for medical procedures. The city gave her all the time she requested. She returned to work. Uh, she was dressing and grooming as female. Uh, so her supervisor told her that she had received an anonymous complaint about how Jane Doe was dressing, but assured her that her attire was appropriate. Uh, she then took another short medical leave for some follow-up surgery. She came back, she found that somebody had defaced her office nameplate by scrawling the word Mr. on it. She complained to her supervisor and the response was the supervisor's assistant removed and cleaned the nameplate and replaced it. No, no other follow-up. Yeah, these facts are just outrageous and, and this is just the first thing, right? Somebody left a gift bag on her desk a few weeks later containing what was described as a phallic toy. And there was an illiterate handwritten note that quoted the ban on cross-dressing from Deuteronomy. She reported this to her supervisor who told her, well, go file a complaint with human resources. Uh, so she filed a complaint. She didn't know who was responsible. Uh, it later developed that her supervisor had information that would have been relevant on this because her supervisor knew who the complainant was about uh, Jane Doe's attire because the complainant made another complaint after Jane Doe returned to work dressed as a woman. Uh, so HR undertakes an investigation, but says they couldn't identify who left the gift bag in the note, even though they asked coworkers for handwriting samples so they compared them to this handwritten note, but they, they said they couldn't figure out who. Uh, after the Christmas break, she uh, asked about putting a lock on her door, her office door, because evidently they didn't have locks on the office doors, and installing a camera. But no action was taken in response to her request. She offered to pay for the lock. And she was said, no, no, you can't do that. A coworker on her floor became increasingly hostile towards Stowe after her transition and made disparaging remarks about her to other coworkers. Finally, the supervisor told Doe that this particular coworker was actually the source of the complaints about her attire, but that uh, the supervisor had asked him and he denied any involvement in the gift bag incident. Uh, five months later, Doe found a typewritten note in her office mailbox, this time quoting from Leviticus, the provision uh, generally interpreted as imposing the death penalty for sodomy. Uh, she reported this new note she considered it a threat. She suspected the same coworker, but she didn't convey these suspicions to the police or her employer and the police refused to get involved. They said, this is an internal matter. Do it through your HR department. Uh, the city finally initiated a requisition for a lock for her door. But then two weeks later, no lock having been installed yet, she found another note on her office chair. This uh, typewritten note said, you were warned. Now I will show you better than I could tell you. And then in all caps, God have mercy on your soul. All right, so now she's freaking out. What's going on here? She felt threatened. She filed a complaint with the EEOC. She filed a complaint with the Michigan Civil Rights Agency. She told city officials she suspected this particular coworker, but they said there was no hard evidence against him. Human resources interviewed various employees, but not this particular coworker who was 
suspected. And uh, they did not inform other employees about these notes that were being left for Joe. For Doe. And Doe, at her request, was moved to a vacant office on another floor. But a few days later, she was told a lock has been installed on your original office and the supervisor is having all your things moved back to your old office, even though Doe had asked not to be returned to that floor with that coworker there. Uh, two employees in Doe's department then informed the human resources office that the suspected coworker had viewed Doe's Facebook page the previous year and had made disparaging comments about her. And so finally, HR took some action. They suspended the coworker without pay for three days and moved his office to a different floor. But they informed Doe that they were unable to determine who left the notes and they were gonna refer the matter to the police department. She said, look, I'm getting the runaround here. No one is paying attention to this. It's a hostile environment. I'm, I'm afraid that something's gonna happen. She contacted a reporter she knew and a local news station ran the story. Ah, that woke up the police. All of a sudden they've got to investigate. It's a public issue now. And, uh, but they never interviewed the suspected coworker. They didn't reach any conclusion as to who left the notes, but that was the last incident that occurred. And uh, maybe the coworker was deterred once it became a public story and they figured out oh, now I'm gonna get in real trouble. Uh, and Doe claims that her supervisor became hostile to her in various ways while this was going on. And when the supervisor decided to leave her job at the city, she recommended somebody else less qualified than Doe to fill her position, even though Doe had applied for it. All right, so the EEOC issued her a right to sue letter. She filed suit under Title VII at Michigan Civil Rights Law, but she suffered summary judgment, which the Sixth Circuit panel affirmed. I, I was amazed when I read this. I mean, this is obvious hostile environment and obvious failure of the employer to take any kind of adequate action. But both the district judge and the Sixth Circuit panel found that the city's responses had been reasonable. That the city took her complaints, investigated, even though the investigations were pretty half-hearted and clumsy. And even though it wasn't until she went to the press that something actually happened. But the problem is, the problem is the harasser, whoever it was, was a coworker. And under the US Supreme Court's sexual harassment jurisprudence, an employer is not responsible for a hostile environment created by coworkers unless the employer does not respond reasonably, doesn't have a grievance procedure, doesn't have a mechanism for investigating, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, it's it's like it's staring you in the face. You read this story. We know who was at fault here. And the employer did not do its job properly here. They did not provide adequate support to this transgender employee who was being subjected to threats, written threats from an anonymous coworker whose identity could be easily figured out. Wow. Um, so, you know, we, we've, we've got Title VII coverage and the court admits it in a footnote. Uh, Judge Gibbons, who wrote for the Sixth Circuit, uh, she drops a footnote and she says, well, after Bostock, obviously, uh, this claim is actionable under Title VII, but the employer's liability depends upon finding the employer at fault. Yeah. Well, this is outrageous, um, and the facts are really difficult to read and uh, 
and and summarize. But um, thanks for letting us know, and hopefully we'll we'll see some Biden appointments to that circuit. So, Art, do you have enough note for us? Yeah, it's 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 the article you wrote. So you so you can talk about, talk about it. <laughs> it's, it's the article you wrote for Law Notes this month, uh, okay. which must be fresh in mind. That <laughs> you wrote it pretty recently. I, I'll let you tell tell us all about it. Okay, the Colorado Supreme Court. Just right? don't, don't expect that I'm going to act surprised. Yeah, all right. <laughs> this is the this is the matter of Robert E. Abrams, a uh, Colorado attorney, uh-huh. who uh, you know, this is a uh, one of those loose lips sink ships case. Anyway, he was representing this couple in a lawsuit against their builder, dispute arising out of a construction contract, and ultimately won the case, but had a falling out with the clients about billing, something like that. And uh, there was supposed to be a uh, conference of some sort, a case management conference. And uh, in communicating with the clients about the conference, Abrams referred in an email to the presiding judge as a, quote, gay fat fag. The relationship with the clients just broke down entirely. And they filed a complaint with the Office of, of Attorney Regulation which notified Abrams that a request for an investigation into his billing practices had been initiated. And they filed the complaint against him saying he violated the code of professional responsibility by describing the judge using an anti-gay slur in a communication to his clients. As a result of which he was suspended from practice for three months. And he said, first amendment, first amendment, freedom of speech. And they said, no, no, we're regulating professional conduct here. You know, when you're when you're speaking as a lawyer to your clients under the code of professional responsibility, you can't use language like this about the judge. Right. That's undermining the system of justice. And part of our role as enforcing professional discipline is maintaining respect for the courts and the law. So talking like this about this judge, you know, when when I read this this opinion, I thought of the Giuliani situation. Mm. You know, where now he's claiming First Amendment, I have a First Amendment right to lie to the courts and the public right. in service of my client. Well, you know, I've talked, I've exchanged emails with some of my faculty colleagues in the legal ethics area, and they say, well, no, it's not exactly the same thing. Uh, that's lying. This is calling, this is name calling. Is you know, There are differences here. Uh, but there's, there's some parallels here. There's some parallels on the issue of First Amendment. Yeah. And generally, the First Amendment protects freedom of speech. But, right. you know, there are exceptions. There are exceptions. And, uh, you know, enforcement of professional ethics rules uh, when they are violated by someone because of something they said. Right. And here he, he you know, kind of said, oh, you know, yeah, I use the slur, but you can't prove I'm anti-gay, right? Like, uh, was one of the defenses and the court. I'm just contemptuous of this judge, and I expressed that to my clients well. <laughs> And the and the court said, look, you're allowed to criticize, you know, officers of the court, um, but not in this way that's going to harm uh, the institution and it's going to deteriorate people's confidence in in the courts um, and and discrimination more broadly. Um, 
So, yeah, this was this was very interesting. Yeah. And three, three chairs for the Colorado Supreme Court. <laughs> they always do good things, unlike the Iowa Supreme Court. I'm usually yeah. impressed with their jurisprudence. Um, well, the um, Iowa Supreme Court did give us our first and only unanimous judicial marriage equality ruling. And that is true. It was a which, very different yeah. Brandstadless Supreme right. Court. <laughs> for which a majority of the uh, Iowa electorate voted a majority of the court out of office when they were up for retention. The Iowa Supreme Court has a storied history and past. This is not among uh, their, you know, their their best decisions. Uh, there was that other case where um, the doctor fired his nurse's assistant because right. she was too pretty, sure. um, and um, the wife was getting jealous. And the court said, "No, that's fair. You can do that." But anyway, it looked terrible at the time because you had all seven men on the court, <laughs> just totally tone deaf. All right, Art. Well, um, thank you so much for another fantastic episode. Uh, and we will be back next month where we're going to talk about uh, the Meriwether decision that we got just recently, correct? Well, we're going to talk about the refusal of the Sixth Circuit to reconsider it on bank. Right. I think we talked about it a few podcasts ago. We did. So more Sixth Circuit hits for you. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Art, take care. And thank you so much for listening. This and other episodes of the Legal LGBT podcast can be found online at Spotify or on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please like us, give us stars, leave a comment. It's how other people discover us. We will be back soon.